You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 34. Making a sandwich. So you you have all these ingredients and mapping would be cutting up the tomatoes, cutting up the lettuce, and then you would send one slice of tomato to each machine to then assemble the full sandwich. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Local Maximum. Before I get into today's episode, which which is really great because we're completing the picture of engineering and technology that I'm documenting through these podcast episodes and these, these interviews. But in the same vein, this week I finally launched the website. That's right. You can get it at localmaxradio.com. Check it out. There's a lot to see. Show notes pages for all of the episodes. You can quickly search all the episode show notes for the key terms. So, for example, if you want to search for Ethereum because you're interested in Ethereum, then you search for it. And then all the times we talked about it, that it comes up. And the only thing that could make it better are transcripts. <sighs> One day. But... There's also an archive, so you can see all of the episodes right in front of you. Uh, there's a glossary of tags, and so it's so great. Oh, oh, and one more thing. I'm making the URLs for this website really nice and clean because I'm starting fresh. So, for example, this episode, Data Engineering with Joe Crowback, this is episode 34. So if you want to get to this page quickly, go to localmaxradio.com slash 34 slash three, four. So if you're wondering what we're, we were doing for, I don't know, episode two, what was going on in episode two? You just go to localmaxradio.com slash two. And oh, okay. That's the Mariam Ali episode on building international products. Very cool. So check it out. Again, it's localmaxradio.com. Let me know what you think. All right. This episode, uh, as I said, it completes the picture because we've spoken about machine learning We've spoken about natural language processing, but did you know that all of these applications, think something like Foursquare or Twitter or Netflix, and of course the biggest guys like Google and Amazon and Facebook, all of those smart algorithms can be built because data engineers worked on the software infrastructure that allowed us to build it. So to find out more about this, I decided to speak to my friend Joe Crowback, who was a data engineer at Foursquare, and has been doing it ever since. He runs a popular newsletter called Data Engineering Weekly. And we're going to talk about what data engineering is, what sorts of products it allows, and also how the discipline has changed over the last 10 years. I think that this knowledge is also going to help us when we analyze emerging technology for the next 10 years. So to go more deeply into his bio, Joe Crowback is a software developer that has worked on several data-powered consumer products at Foursquare and other startups in New York City. He worked for two years in the federal government as a founding member of the United States Digital Service Team at the Department of Health and Human Services. Joe's Data Eng weekly newsletter, which covers distributed systems and big data, reaches over 11,000 subscribers to date. 
He lives, I, man, I wish I had 11,000 subscribers as a podcast. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and two dogs. So I also talked to Joe about his time working in government versus his time working at startups and D.C. versus New York and that sort of thing. So I hope you enjoy this chat. Let's bring him up. All right. Welcome to the show, Joe. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Thanks for having me, Max. It's great to, great to talk with you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. It's been a while. How long have you been out of Foursquare? Um, you know, when when were you at Foursquare? When were we working together? I'm trying to remember what the dates were there. Yeah, so I was at Foursquare for right around two years, and it's been five years now since I left. So uh, we'll, wow. we'll make it 2011 to, to 2013. Time goes that fast, huh? It sure does. Just seems That's, like yesterday. I feel like around two and a half years is kind of the life cycle of work at a company where um, w- when you start a project and then two and a half years later, like the company is pretty different. Do you find that there's like a, there's like a, a, a cycle there where it's, even though I've been at, at Foursquare for seven years, I feel like I've been through three cycles like this where it's just, and you know, my first job, I was there for, for two and a half years. It's like, th- that's like the, the general time period for one cycle for really jumping into a, uh, I don't know, eating, <laughs> uh, getting getting done what you need to get done at a company. Do you yeah, see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's true. I think for me, it's been closer to two years, and maybe that's yeah. because I uh, I don't end up ramping up on something else while while the current project is ramping down. But yeah, it, you, you come in, you start identifying some problems, conceptualize some ideas, and it takes a, a year or two to, to really implement them and see them to fruition. Yeah, I usually think oh, I'll get this done in six months and then, um, you know, all this stuff comes up. But if you have patience in like two years, you eventually get done everything you want to get done. Um, and, th- and the stuff you set up at Foursquare is, um, well, uh, you know, you set a lot of precedents at Foursquare because when you came into Foursquare, it was two years old, two-year-old company, um, a lot of the data engineering stuff, uh, or, or the, the, the pipelines, all the, all the basic infrastructure just was not there. Right. And then you put it in place and basically we've been building off that ever since. So, uh, tell me a little bit about what you set up for Foursquare. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we had a small team at that point working on, on data products, um, well, well, really, the the engineering side of data, and uh, when I came in, we we had a a few business intelligence dashboards to look at things like you know daily check ins, and we right. we were really stumbling. They were kind of only updating a couple of days a week because the pipelines were failing, and we put in place this this broad infrastructure that supported everything from those types of business intelligence you know, looking at the daily numbers or weekly numbers to supporting ad hoc queries, you know, the product team or an engineer has a question about what the, what the data looks like and can run a, a ad hoc query um, using SQL. Uh, we had Hive in place. I don't know how much of that is still there. And- um, some, some form of it. But yeah, very important. You want people, you want everybody at the company to be able to ask questions of the data. Yeah, that was one of our, our greatest accomplishments, I think. I, whenever I'd go out and talk about what we built, I could point to the fact that we had 
a hundred people inside the company every month that were using our our data, and that just kind of blew people's mind because usually it's a the, the accessibility of that data is really tiny; only a few people can do it. Um, yeah, and then I think the third part that I was was probably the 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 neatest of what we did was all the base infrastructure we put in place for the machine learning pipelines uh, to yes. take in data and and then push it back out uh, to power a lot of the features of Foursquare. Right, right. And that same pipeline now powers a lot of the features of uh, attribution and pinpoint and pilgrim, all the enterprise products that we work on today. Um, so well, tell me a little bit about that. How How does that work? What's the... What is, well, let's just actually get into, you know, what it is that you do. And then maybe we could talk about this a little bit because we've covered a lot of aspects of software development on the show. And, you know, I talk about machine learning a lot. I talk about AI a lot. So we've covered that. But what people sometimes fail to appreciate is how um, all of this is built on top of data engineering efforts and data pipelines. So before we begin, let's define the term like what is data engineering and what is a data pipeline? Sure. So I, I don't know that I can, can directly answer that because it's, it's kind of complicated. There's a lot of aspects to it, but, but data engineering, uh, yep. it, it, from my perspective, there are really three parts. Uh, there's the collection of data and determining what data to collect. This is, Things like check-ins, if you're Foursquare, if you're Netflix, it might be things like what trailers or what TV shows someone's watching. Yeah, um, or movie reviews. Yep, yep, ratings. Uh, the Then there's the processing of that data, which is sometimes just counting, and sometimes it's much more complicated machine learning or artificial intelligence. And then finally, you, you have to kind of reincorporate the data that you've calculated into your product and that can be difficult uh, to do reliably and um, with with good frequency, like daily or in real time. So data engineering is is about building the tools to do those types of common tasks. It's uh, sitting with the business and sitting with the, the software teams and figuring out what types of patterns are emerging and then building tools to make it easy to um, replicate something that someone else is doing from a data perspective. Um, so if you contrast that to data science, it's a lot less about the math. It's more about how do we enable like a, a nightly calculation of data? How do we make sure that the data arrives on time that we can calculate the, the, the statistic or the, the attribute timely in a timely manner, and then make sure that it's, uh, shipped to to the product, um, and then also how do we detect and prevent errors along the way? So it's a, it's a lot of the the plumbing, the the train tracks, if you will, that kind of the the rest of the the product runs on top of. If that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, in my experience, this is when you do machine learning projects, uh, when you do data projects, most of the work is in data engineering. Most of the work is like setting it up right. Most of the work actually is not doing the, the model itself, which, you know, is always the part we want to talk about. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting that it works out yeah. that way. Um, yeah. And, and I think the, the other thing that, uh, you know, one of my 
one of my my friends recently said to me is, you know, isn't data engineering becoming more and more the same thing as software engineering? Um, and I do think there's there's some some truth to that, but I think there's a, a couple well, of different flavors it, of of data engineering too. It is a type of software engineering, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there's also some things that you do, you would consider data engineering and that aren't necessarily software engineering. There's there's some sort of oh. Venn diagram there. Um, okay. So w- w- which part? Let's break it down. What's the part that's not part of software engineering? Um, well, I think that classic software engineering, data engineering, you think about things like databases. So right. um, how do you how do you have a fast and reliable data connection to power? Um, an app when it loads quickly, things like that. Um, but then there's right. the the big data, the batch analytics, and you certainly use software engineering techniques for that, but it's often considered separate from software engineering. And and that's really about handling data sets that are too large to fit on a single machine. Um, so you have billions of, of data points and it's too big to fit on a laptop to do an analysis. How do you build the tools to... to uh, analyze that data. And then I think the third aspect, and, and there is definitely some overlap, is is something we've seen a much bigger shift to recently, which is real-time data. Um, and this is things like uh, n- a new data point comes in, maybe a new product is added to Amazon, and you want to make sure that it appears in recommendations right away. Um, so being able to process those new data points as, as quickly as possible. Of course. Of course. That's... Uh... Yeah, I'm sure Amazon will like that. I'm sure Google like. Well, those have been real time for a while, but um, it sounds like a lot of companies are, you know, want their services to be real time as well. And there are a lot of applications where time is really of the essence. Uh, so, can you give some examples of some products or some web services that require a lot of work on the data engineering side? Maybe let's talk about something that uh, that most of the audience has heard of. I know there's a lot of stuff out there that's, you know, probably every company can think <laughs> of has yeah. a, a pipeline, but what, what's a company where you think it's, or a, a product where you think, you know, oh, wow, that took a lot of data engineering work. Yeah, I think there's, I, I can give you a couple of examples. When we talk about like the, the, the real time, the database products, you want a fast and reliable connection. Um, I think a good example there is the databases that support Twitter because you have uh, yeah. Some users with only a small number of followers, and then you have other users with, you know, millions of followers. And in either case, you need to be able to load the Twitter timeline really fast and really reliably. Um, so that's, I think, a, a good example of like the the, the real time database aspect. Um, the the right. go ahead. That's interesting. Before we go on, uh, that's like because um, data uh, Twitter has sort of an exponentially distributed graph like like you said um i wonder if they would do, use some kind of like hierarchical infrastructure not hierarchical infrastructure but more like a, uh, a layered infrastructure where there's different services for different types of users i think they do uh, at least they used to talk more about these types of things before they were a public company and and they mm. did talk about how you know justin bieber had his own server um that kind of thing <laughs> Really? Yeah. Well, I guess that makes sense. Um, and so, and then of course, probably like all of us are thrown into like the base servers. Uh, <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah. So, what was the other example that you were giving? 
Yeah, I think the the next one I would I would talk about is I think a lot of people are familiar with LinkedIn, and one of the features of LinkedIn sure. is the the people you may know, um, which is where they predict people that you might want to connect with. And and for a long time, it, it may be a little bit different now, but the way that they did that was they had a nightly uh, batch job that ran and looked at for every user on LinkedIn what their social graph was, you know, who they were connected to, and then looked one step out. Um, and so you're talking a lot, a lot of data. There are million, ten, hundreds of millions of people on LinkedIn and yeah. doing that calculation reliably so that each day there is a new version of the, the people you may know recommendations is a, is a pretty significant data engineering effort. And that was just right. one of many different uh, data, data engineering products they had uh, that, that tied data science and data engineering pretty closely together. Yeah, I imagine there's so many things that you want to put in that, like people who worked at the same company as you did, but maybe if you worked at like a huge company with tens of thousands of people, then it wouldn't count for as much. Um, and then, you know, just people who are in your contacts or then, you know, the friends of friends type thing. How useful is that kind of figuring all that out and putting that all together? Um, well, just getting getting all that data through, first of all, and because a lot of different types and then figuring, putting that all together in an algorithm. Um, yeah, they probably have, had a team doing that. Yeah, it's, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think my understanding is that they started with a very simple algorithm that was friends of friends and friends overlap. But then the, the data science folks would think of all these other features that they want to consider. And before you know it, you're probably considering a large swath of all the LinkedIn data for that calculation. So how do you incorporate all of that data from probably vastly different data sources. Some of them might be, you know, clicks of uh, on the web. Um, some of them are, are your core databases. And how, how do you bring all those things together to build a good product is, is something that the data engineering team there would, would work with the data science team. Cool. Well, so um, you have a weekly newsletter called Data Eng Weekly. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, when did you get started on that, and what was your what was your motivation for starting that newsletter? Yeah, absolutely. So I started Data Eng Weekly um, almost six years ago. Uh, it, I started it. Uh, I, I realized not too long ago that I started it on the uh, the second inaugural of President Obama, which is kind of a fun fact. Um, uh, so that would that would have been 2012. Yep, and I uh, well 20, 2013, January January. Oh 20, right, 2013. Yeah, yep. yeah. Sorry. Yep. So, <laughs> and, and at that point in time, it was called Hadoop Weekly. Um, yeah. Apache Hadoop is is one of the products that uh, the open source projects that was built to replicate a lot of the infrastructure that Google built in the early two thousands, and it it's the core of a lot of data products, data engineering. Uh, pipelines, but it, it's what um, it's what we used at Foursquare at the time. And it yeah, was just the- well, fun fact on that. It was so I took a class in emerging technology in 2009, and people had to you know get up for their final project and talk about some emerging technology. And I remember one group did their project on Hadoop as an emerging technology. And it's interesting how you say that. Uh, I mean. Now it's just thought of kind of as a separate thing, but it was originally done to replicate what Google was doing in, you know, circa, you know, the 2000s. And now that's kind of standard in the industry. 
Yeah. Um, and, and it, it kind of spawned a whole industry of sub projects and related projects. I started talking about over the years, the Hadoop ecosystem, which was, you know, Hadoop and then the tools for getting data in, for getting data out, for serving these real-time data needs as well. And eventually, uh, about a year ago, or, or I guess it was January or so of this year, I, I ended up renaming the newsletter to be Data Eng Weekly uh, to kind of reflect the fact that it was no longer so Hadoop-centric, it, you know, talking about all these real-time data projects, talking about um, all kinds of tools other than than Hadoop and, and the core of Hadoop. Uh, it, it really evolved over the years. Do you think that Hadoop is still the main talking point in data engineering or, or maybe not? Like what, what sort of um, frameworks or technologies have either replaced it or at least like outshined it? I don't know. Maybe not replaced it. Maybe if you want to do, um, want to do the same thing, like the, the use case for Hadoop, if, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I should know because I use it all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> it's if you want to, you know, rip over a very large data set and you have, um, some transformation of it that is very, you know, horizontally scalable. In other words, you want to add something together. Um, well, you can add numbers together in clumps, so you can kind of um, you can kind of do that in a bunch of different machines and then add together the final result. I'm trying to explain it in a way that that would be friendly to the podcast listeners. Um, but what? Uh, would you say that uh, when you started, was it something like, oh, 90% of the discussion was Hadoop and now now what is it? Yeah, it's a good good question. So I think it's 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 much less Hadoop. I think that when you hit a certain scale, Hadoop is the only tool that you can use anymore. But until you have petabytes of data, there are some attractive alternatives. Um, there are two two main components to Hadoop. There's storing data and sharding it across a lot of different servers. And then there is the computation framework MapReduce, which is what you were kind of talking about. I think one of my right, more interesting analogies I've heard for MapReduce is uh, you making a sandwich. So you, you have all these ingredients and, and mapping would be cutting up the tomatoes, cutting up the lettuce, and then you would send one slice of tomato to each machine to then assemble the full sandwich. It's kind of a... Probably gotcha. better if you have a good illustration to go with it, but that's a interesting MapReduce um, explanation. But maybe back. we'll make a YouTube video that illustrates that at some point. There you and, go. Uh, we get to eat a lot of sandwiches, so. <laughs> um, so so the 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 data storage aspect of of Hadoop is to to use a little of a of a silly term has been replaced by the cloud. Um, Amazon has a a service called S3, which is a uh, what they call an object store for storing data, and Google's cloud and Microsoft's cloud have very similar products, and that has really replaced the Hadoop file system for most use cases for most companies. Um, as long as you're in the cloud, if you're still in a data center, then then Hadoop is still popular. Um, and then other tools like Spark have have replaced or are replacing the MapReduce side of things um, in many ways and a couple of other tools. And then, and then the biggest, I think, shift over the past probably two to three years is that there's now this emphasis on real time. And we're seeing tools like 
Kafka come into place. Apache Kafka is another data storage um, tool that is now powering a lot of real-time computation. So instead of recalculating those people you may know once per night, uh, a tool like Kafka enables you to um, incorporate new data, new signals um, in real time and update your, your recommendations in real time as well. Yeah, yeah, cool. So a couple of points on what you said. Well, first of all, so we are using something called Scalding now, which is something that lives on hop, on top of Hadoop, which is a framework in the in the language Scala. So all these, when you work in tech, you have all these different like <laughs> frameworks and weird names. I have this kind of rule that like the the cutesier the name, the more dry and technical the actual thing is going to be. Um, but uh, it, it's also interesting you mentioned all these data centers because we use Amazon at Foursquare. People don't realize like not only do these companies have all your data, but then it then gets re-centralized into Amazon and Microsoft who has everyone's data, which is a little crazy if you think about it. Sure is, yeah. All right, cool. So let's let's move on to your Medium article. You have one titled, The 10 Most Surprising Things That I Learned Working in Government. So you moved over from the startup world to the United States Digital Service uh, first of all, what what is the United States Digital Service? Because I never heard of that. Sure, we are. Well, I should say we were. I was part of the Digital Service. I'm no longer there. Um, but the okay. the Digital Service, we we kind of like to refer to ourselves as Peace Corps for geeks. Um, so it's this program that was started under President Obama to bring folks from private startup world into the government to remake the way that government builds technology. And it was uh, founded, the founding team was kind of assembled after healthcare.gov launched its first year and couldn't couldn't withstand uh, even the smallest amount oh, of, yeah. uh, of pressure. So I remember um, that. Yeah. I th- President Obama said to us uh, before he left office that um, even though there was some failure with healthcare.gov, it, it may have been a situation in which something good came out of failure because the digital service team was founded. And uh, we started out pretty small. Um, I joined when it was around 50 people. And over the course of the, the two years I was there, we grew to go work inside of many different federal agencies. I worked at the, the, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, which is in Health and Human Services. And we had teams also at Veterans Affairs, uh, Department of State, um, Department of Homeland Security, at the Pentagon, uh, and and also at the White House. So um, certainly an interesting uh, interesting job. And the team is responsible for helping advise and helping implement IT projects, particularly the hard ones, the big ones, the ones that have the most impact as well. Yeah, so I'm going to pick out a few of these maybe to expand upon that I found interesting. Let's go to number three. It's much easier to save $10 million than you would think. Was this something you were able to do? Yeah, I, I, we did it a couple times. Um, Unfortunately, you don't see any of that. But <laughs> we, we, we have talked a little bit about it, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's hard. Uh, it, it's funny. So at... at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, they run Medicare and Medicaid, which are the two biggest healthcare programs in in the country. They together account for over $700 billion in spending. And that's 
to put it into to context, that's, that's, yeah. that's 3.4% of the, the U.S. GDP. Um, so they have a pretty big budget when it comes to implementing technology programs, too. And uh, it's not uncommon for a project to, to have a budget in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, one of the projects I worked on there um, was a Medicare project, and it was all about uh, shifting the way that Medicare pays doctors to, to put more focus on the value of that care. So keeping track of things like, does a, a patient get readmitted to the hospital after they see you? Um, do they uh, you know, report that their care was good? And the, the system we built was really a data collection system to, to collect all this data about healthcare and uh, then use it to help calculate those scores to, to figure out which, um, which doctors would get kind of a bonus of, of their Medicare payments and which would not. And there were a couple of things we did as part of that project, um, which had hundreds of millions of dollars of budget to save big swaths of money. Um, one of them was simply switching to a software as a service uh, vendor um, for our identity management. So identity management, by that I mean you, you go to the system, you log in, uh, you, have, you, know, you put an email address, a password, um, Government systems tend to be somewhat secure, so there's also usually a second factor, like a, a, a text message or another code that you have to enter to log into the system. And we switched for, from running our own system uh, in our own data center, which the hardware itself to run that system ran in the tens of millions of dollars, to instead using an off-the-shelf uh, a software-as-a-service product called Okta, and in the process... Uh, the the line item on the budget um, for identity management went from several million dollars a year to less than a million dollars. Um, so that's one example. I think the the other one that was was pretty exciting too is we we switched a couple of the the ways that we hired teams. Um, so in the government, a lot of the software development is not done by federal employees. In fact, very little is. Most of it's done by by contractors contract teams right. that are hired. Um, and so instead of putting out these giant contracts for $50 million, uh, what we did is we said, we want to find specialized teams that can each do different parts of the, of the product. So, you know, someone who's really good at data science can do this part. People that are really good at building websites can do this part, you know, the data engineering team. So we, we split up what was a, a very large product uh, sorry, a very large contract that was in the you know fifty yeah. million dollar range into these smaller chunks of of development, and in the process we but sometimes we uh, yeah sometimes uh, coordinating all that can be um, a bit of work. Yes, um, in fact, there was also a contractor to help coordinate all that work. So oh, interesting. <laughs> but yeah, in the in the end, you can you can buy smaller. You can you can find smaller teams. Uh, with a lot less overhead, uh, a much higher software developer ratio to total team size, and really get a lot more bang for your buck. All right. So I want to post people to the article, but uh, another one that looked interesting, the Paperwork Reduction Act you talk about. What I don't know. Whenever I hear something like that, I'm like, oh, no, what is that going to be? What's the background behind that? Yeah, so this was a, the the Paperwork Reduction Act. I believe it was passed in the the 1980s or maybe the 1990s, and it was this great idea that 
Um, if the government is collecting data from a citizen, uh, we should be efficient and not ask for duplicate data. Um, you know, if I give one agency my address, then it should it should flow everywhere. I shouldn't have to turn around and give you know both the IRS and Health and Human Services all my all my information. And the way that that's implemented is that um, there is one central body in the government that is responsible for reviewing and approving all paperwork forms that the government uh, puts out into the world. And and whether or not you realize that you've used one of these forms, a couple of common uh, examples are the I-9, which is used to verify employment. You know, you have to show your password or birth certificate sure. when you start a job. Um, yep. Or W-2, which is what you get from your employer at the end of the year. And Every those, year. Yep. And those those numbers, that I-9, that W-2, those are the control numbers that that central agency uses to review the documents that come in. So it's, uh, that's the... That's the yeah. That's why they have those weird names. Yep. And... So the way that it works is they review this paperwork. It takes anywhere from two to three months. And then there's also a public comment period where they say, hey, the government's about to publish this new form. If anyone has comments on the form, um, you, you have 60 days or 90 days to enter those comments and we'll consider them in, before we publish the final form. And that kind of makes sense some, in some ways in a paper world. Uh, but when the government's going digital, what they do is they take that I-9 form or that W-2 form and translate it directly to a web form on a web page. And they're not allowed to stray from the content of that form. And a good example of where this goes terribly wrong is the healthcare application for healthcare.gov, which has to consider lots and lots of different special cases, you know, whether you're a, a, a Native American, whether you work in the military, and the application, if it's printed on paper, uh, is, is tens of pages long. Um, but for most people, you only have to answer a handful of questions to know if you're eligible for healthcare. And the way the law is written, you're, you're not really allowed to, as the, as the government, simplify that form down to those five or six questions, you still have to ask all of those questions one by one to map directly to that form. And if you want to change your your form, then you have to go through this Paperwork Reduction Act process that's put in place to really cut, uh, to really change, change, you know, instead of asking for a home phone number, we want to ask for a mobile phone number. Well, that triggers this whole three to six month cycle again. It's yeah. it's a little bit crazy. Yeah. So, what's your what what's in the future for you? Are you going to stay in Washington or come back to the startup world? I am in the process of trying to to start a health tech company, and uh, we're we're a few months in now. Um, and my co-founder is in New York, so the plan is to move back to New York once we kind of get things off the ground. Um, it's been been pretty exciting uh and I, I can tell you that the opportunities for technology and data to improve the healthcare system are are pretty big and i think we've got some some pretty exciting work ahead of us yeah well if you ever do that uh when you get up and running maybe you'll come back on the show and uh tell us uh about any products that you launch um 
So I will point everyone to the Medium article and to the Data Engineering Weekly website. Thanks so much, Max. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. All right. I definitely want to wish Joe well in the healthcare venture he's working on because using data engineering and by extension, big data and uh, machine learning to solve some of our most pressing uh, health issues, I think we can make a lot of progress. And this could be on treatment, on cost, on personalized medicine. You know, we'll find out, but there are a lot of exciting gains to be made there. So once again, the show notes for this episode, when they're up, can be reached at localmaxradio.com slash 34. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna say.